have you done something that, that could somehow remove you from the ability to be entered into the lineage of Christ? And they were speaking in a spiritual context. You have not. You cannot. And that is highlighted all throughout this genealogy. He is God who saves sinners. He is God who redeems his people who are sinners. And that is found even in what is emphasized in this genealogy. Welcome once again to Grace Maribel Weekly, which is a sermon podcast ministry of the Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you joined us last time, you heard as Pastor Chris Reiser began explaining the historical records of the genealogy of Jesus found in the book of Matthew chapter 1. Pastor Chris gave us an overview of the many details found in Jesus' genealogy to include the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the new covenant, all of which are crucial for a true understanding of who Jesus is for all mankind. In part B of the sermon, titled The Lineage of the King, Pastor Chris will begin to explain and develop the specifics found in the genealogy of Christ focusing on certain individuals within the genealogy and giving us the thematic purpose Matthew has for the genealogy. Let's listen to the conclusion of the lineage of the king. He has a reason why he puts together the genealogy in the way he does, because the Spirit is inspiring him to do it, and he focuses on certain people within it for a particular reason. So let's do the best we can to look at those. Chapter 2, or verse 2, excuse me. Abraham, and this is, this is the lineage specified on your outline, the lineage specified. First, mentioned to us here, he is a descendant of Abraham. And as I mentioned, that's purposeful. Matthew starts there on purpose because it's a Jewish audience. Where your history begins, Jews, that's where I'm starting. That's the groundwork for Jesus as the Messiah, right? as the Jewish Messiah. So he is a descendant of Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Jewish race, the one to whom God gave the original promise. So it grounds it there. But then notice as it moves on, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and then it adds something, doesn't just move on, and his brothers. And, and also, if you're aware of Old Testament history and who the children of Jacob were, the Judah strikes you there. Because Judah was not the firstborn, and generally the genealogies are traced through the firstborn who receives the blessing and the benefit from the father. But here we have Judah. Well, it was Reuben that was the firstborn. So why is, uh, excuse me, that was the firstborn. Oh, Reuben. So why is Judah mentioned here? Well, because this too, and Matthew's emphasizing, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of his people. So he focuses on Judah, mentioning that name, because this is also a fulfillment of the prophecy, prophecies that were made about who the Messiah would be. But then he says, Judah and his brothers, again, emphasizing the nation of Israel itself. Uh, the brothers of Judah and Jacob's 12 sons make up the 12 tribes of Israel. So he stops and goes, okay, this is all about Israel, Judah and his brothers, that is the nation of Israel as a whole, Jesus is, is associated, is seen as, as coming from those 12 tribes. Number two on, on your outline, so descendant of Abraham, descendant of Judah, which we've seen, but 
Now we have another fascinating and stunning introduction in verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez. Okay, no problem. And Zerah. Now they were twins, so that's probably why they're mentioned together. Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Stop. There's a, there's a, there would be a, a spotlight focused on this if you were a Jew reading this in the first century. Why? You don't put women in genealogies. It's only the men. Only the, the, the descendant comes that way. That's the legal descent. That's how it works. Women don't show up in genealogies. But here we have Tamar. Now, even more stunning is the fact that Tamar was a Canaanite. She was a pagan. Even more stunning is the fact that Tamar enters into the line of Christ through a relationship with her father-in-law, where she sits as a harlot in front of a city, and Judah comes and, and has intercourse with her, and they have a child. Wow. And that's highlighted in the genealogy. Why? Well, when we looked at the book of Ruth, we saw one of the reasons. That's a kinsman-redeemer relationship. Even in the midst of its sinfulness, as, as, as both Judah sinned in that relationship and as Tamar sinned in that relationship, it, God used it as an example of the fact that he was the kinsman redeemer because Tamar was supposed to receive, remember, she, her husband was Judah's firstborn. Then he died. He did not receive. Judah said, I'm not, I'm not going to give you my other sons. The other one died. I'm not going to give you my third son. I'm not going to fulfill the kinsman redeemer relationship. And God said, I will. And not only am I going to fulfill that relationship, I'm going to, I'm going to have her in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the kinsman redeemer, and I redeem and I work in even those sin. And I redeem the sinful, and I use those things even to my purposes. A descendant of Judah by Tamar. What an amazing, stunning addition. Well, it just, it just continues. So then we move on kind of in normal fashion. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab. Aminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Solomon. It's kind of moving down through as you normally would. Nothing necessarily to emphasize in these individuals. But then it says Solomon was the father of Boaz by here we have another spotlight, another woman in the genealogy. And who is this woman? Rahab, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Well, this, I think, without doubt, is the Rahab that we find in, in Genesis. The Rahab we find when they send out, the, excuse me, in Joshua, they send out the spies to, to, to spy out the city of Jericho when they're going to go attack it. And there is Rahab, who is what? She's the harlot. And that story is so fascinating because when the spies show up, Rahab knows already who God is, knows what God is planning to accomplish, that is, the, to conquer the land, and believes it. And she says, I know that your God is going to deliver my city, so I'm going to hide you, and when you come back, save me. Because I trust in the God of heaven. That's the implication. And she enters by faith, and we find that in the book of James as well. She enters by faith in God into the line of the Redeemer, the one who was the prostitute of Jericho. What an amazing thing. We have a Canaanite prostitute, essentially, in Tamar. We have another Canaanite prostitute in Rahab, yet entering into the genealogy by faith and by the grace of God spotlighted here. Now, also, I think we need to understand, and I mentioned this before, is that we have a gap in the genealogy here. The father of Boaz by Rahab. Well, Rahab and Boaz are separated by about 300 years or a little bit more. Now, it's not incorrect to say this because the father of often stands for the descendants of, and you see that in other genealogies. But there is a gap here. And you say, well, maybe there's not a gap. Maybe the book of Ruth happened at the beginning of the book of Judges. You still have a problem because then in the genealogy given in Ruth, there's only two generations between Boaz and David. Well, somewhere you've got to get that 300 years. Where are you going to get it? Right? There's a break here in the genealogy. The rest of those names are not mentioned. The ones that Matthew wanted to highlight are being 
highlighted because he has a thematic purpose in putting together this genealogy. These are real descendants. He's just not mentioning them all. So there's a gap here. And again, that would have been easily identifiable by anyone reading this. So it's not like he's trying to put over a fast one on us. Boaz by Rahab, or Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Yet another pagan woman, right? a Moabitess who would have of the cursed line of Moab, which had begun through an incestuous relationship. And here we have Ruth entering into the line, also through a kinsman-redeemer relationship, where Boaz offers to her protection as she comes underneath the God of Israel to find her wages full and her protection from the Lord. Like, what a beautiful thing. As God highlights these women who, who he used by his grace and drew these pagans, these pagan women into, who believed in God. I think that's true for each of them. I think that's the implication. He draws them into the line of Christ totally in a totally stunning manner. Even as he is developing the nation of Israel, he is already showing that by his grace, he will be drawing in the nations. And he will be the redeemer of all, the redeemer of the entire world, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So the descendant of Judah by Tamar, the descendant of Boaz by Rahab, the descendant of Obed by Ruth. And then it goes on, says Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David the king. So the first section of the genealogy brings us through to David. And what does it say? David, the king. There's the focus. And really, David and the descendant of David, Jesus, the greater David, that's the whole, obviously the whole focus of this genealogy. And Matthew is building the genealogy around David and the Davidic kingship and Jesus' fulfillment of that. He's, that's, why, that's how the theme is working. And so we get to David, the king. Remember, David wasn't the first king, and he wasn't the only king. The rest in the line, until we get down to the deportation, they're all kings. Why is he focused upon? Because he was the king after God's own heart. He was the one to whom the promise was made that a greater king would come. And so the focus in the genealogy, pointing ahead to Christ, the one who would have the eternal house, the eternal throne, the eternal kingdom. So the descendant of David the king. And I just would also like to stop for a moment and, and point out that the inclusion of the women in the genealogy points to the grace of God. It points to the salvation of God of the nations. It also points to God's love and care for women. And his exaltation of them in the sense, in the proper sense, his liberation of them as those who, who enter rightly and are, and are, are really advertised and, and put a spotlight on as those who are in the line of Christ. There is no religious system in the world that elevates, that properly liberates women like Christianity, not one. You wouldn't, you wouldn't find these kind of genealogies anywhere else because women have been abused and have been dominated in every other religion and in every other system throughout the world except in Christianity. Only here would you find this kind of exaltation of those in the line of Christ. You want women's liberation? Come to Christ. And see how God views those precious ladies whom he has created from, and, and the human race, male and female, especially creating them. He alone knows how best to both liberate them and to use them and to highlight their faithfulness. You'll find nothing like this in, in women's liberation. It's really an opposite form of abuse. Men are driving it, by the way, as they always do. They're driving the abuse of women through the so-called modern women's liberation movement. They love it. They love it because it, it really enables them to use women for their purpose. God does not use them for his purpose, but he uses them in the right way and according to their nature, how God has created them and how he desires to use them, and it's a tremendous blessing. So we also see the descendant of David the king, 
And Jesus is the descendant of David, yet another woman. But actually, this woman is not mentioned by name. The descendant of David by Bathsheba, or actually you could write in that blank, the descendant of David by her who had been, or she who had been the wife of Uriah. Very interesting. I, I think the New American Standard commits a commits an error here, because the name Bathsheba, which is in the New American Standard, the 95 edition, the newer edition, right, is not in the text at all. Your version, if you have the New American Standard, modern version, says David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Well, I guess the translators added that because they wanted us to make sure we knew who it was, like we wouldn't. And yet it's not, if it's in the ESV, you're reading that, you don't see Bathsheba, the name's not mentioned because it's not in the Greek at all. And it's a mistake, I think, to put it in because what is being emphasized here, amazingly enough, is the identity of Solomon's mother as one who was part of the most heinous crime maybe ever committed by a king, adultery and murder. She who had been, then we have the adultery, the wife of Uriah emphasizing the murder because he was killed by David. Can you imagine that God would allow that circumstance and would actually bring it to light in the genealogy of the king? Because again, his grace is highlighted. Because again, his work and in, in his love for those who repent, David did repent by the Lord's grace. And, and we have Bathsheba, yes, but the focus on she would have been the, the wife of Uriah actually in, again, the line of Christ. What an amazing thing. That Solomon, born out of the, one of the most heinous sins in the Old Testament, enters into the line of Christ because of the great grace of God. Have you done something that, that could somehow remove you from the ability to be entered into the lineage of Christ? And then we're speaking in a spiritual context. You have not. You cannot. And that is highlighted all throughout this genealogy. He is God who saves sinners. He is God who redeems his people who are sinners. And that is found even in what is emphasized in this genealogy. The descendant of David by she who had been the wife of Uriah. Now it gets more general. We're going to we're going to begin to fly now. Jesus is also the descendant of Israel's kings. So the second part of this genealogy, the first one, taking us from Abraham to David. There's there's no kings. The monarchy hadn't been established. The second part of the of this genealogy takes us through the kings, the time of the monarchy, and really it's a very sad progression, a really degression. Because you move from David, the king, the one who was a man after God's own heart, down to the sons of Josiah and ultimately Jeconiah, the cursed one, who bring about the deportation to Babylon. So he was the descendant of Israel's kings, yes, but those kings who ever increasingly, there are some good kings, right? Hezekiah, Josiah mentioned, but ultimately the majority of these kings being evil, and the reason for which the Israelites were taken away into captivity, that the kings really reflected the heart of the people and helped enhance that heart in idolatry and immorality. The descendant of Israel's kings, a sad bunch, most of them, and yet again, God's purposes being accomplished, even in that. And then we have the descendant of deported Israelites. So the descendant of Israel's kings is starting to get bad, and then the descendant of, of deported Israelites. Why were they deported? Because of their immorality? Because of their idolatry? Their, God's people, his ethnic people, are taken away into captivity, spread throughout the nations? What kind of history is that? What kind of lineage is that? Who wants a bunch of deported people, deported because of their unfaithfulness to the one who loved them? Who wants that in their genealogy? And yet again, the grace of God in maintaining a remnant through the line of Christ and also those around him, a remnant of the people of Israel to enter into the New Testament, to have a nation there, and then the remnant that he will continue to draw to himself of his ethnic people and always of believers. 
emphasized in this genealogy and throughout the Bible because the remnant is held by God's grace, not because of their worthiness. He said, it's never how we are held. And so it's the second part of the genealogy is from, the, from David the king to the deportation. What a sad plight that they are taken away into captivity. And then, so that he is the, Jesus is a descendant of deported Israelites. He's also the descendant, now working down, he's a descendant of Joseph by legal right. The descendant of Joseph by legal right. So the rest of those names, some of them we know. Verse 12, from the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, the Rubbabel, we know those names. But once we move past that, we begin to work into names that we're not aware of through the 400 years of silence. But you'll notice there's not enough names to take us through the amount of time that's there. This genealogy is also thematically placed together, the names drawn out as Matthew desired under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Why does he do that? Because as we'll see, he's putting together a balanced genealogy of 14 generations each. And we'll talk about in just a moment why that is. So the descendant of Joseph by legal right, but, and notice that as we move down to verse 16, so all those names, again, most of whom we don't know, Matthew using a, a source that, that at least those are not written down in the Old Testament, who's using a source that he had of the, of the genealogical records. We get down to verse 16. It says, Jacob was the father of Joseph. And now, again, we've talked about this. Matthew's very specific in pointing out that Joseph is not the physical father of Jesus because Joseph, it says, the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born. The whom is feminine, and it relates to Mary. It doesn't say by Joseph Jesus was born. It says, by Mary, Jesus was born. And so he's making very clear through the language here that although Joseph is the legal heir, that is the kingly line back to David that, that comes through Joseph that Jesus would have taken on as he's adopted by Joseph as we see in the next passages, but he is not the physical, in the physical line, he's not the physical father of Jesus. Now, that's the reason for that is because Jeconiah, who was mentioned in this particular genealogy, was cursed by God, and it was said that a descendant of Jeconiah will not, a physical descendant, will not sit upon the throne. And so we have the legal right through Joseph, and that's why we have then the genealogy through Mary, the physical descendants, so that it doesn't come through Jeconiah, but it comes through, ultimately, the physical descendant comes through Mary and comes through Nathan. All right, now, that's the descendant of Joseph by legal right, then the descendant of Mary by physical birth. Now let's review this. We need to be done. And let's review in verse 17. That's what Matthew does. He says, so all the generations from Abraham, so this is the lineage reviewed, all the generations from Abraham to David, that's your outline, are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon are 14 generations. From the deportation to Babylon uh, to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now, I think it's just clear from the text what he's saying is, what you have, what you just read, 14 generations, I, I recorded 14 generations as Matthew, and then I recorded 14 more from David to the deportation, then I recorded 14 more from the deportation to Joseph. He isn't saying that that's all the generations that were in between there, actually, physically. He's saying, look, that's what I wrote to you. I gave you a carefully balanced genealogy with 14 generations in between each, even though, and any Jew would have known this, there are more than 14 generations, certainly in the last two. Saying, that's what I wrote you. I gave you this balanced genealogy. That's what you have. I balanced it out. So Abraham to David, David to the deportation, deportation to Messiah, 14 generations. Now, is that is he allowed to do that? Has he, has he somehow lied? Again, we've talked about the fact that when it says father of, right, very often that means descendant of. And so that's perfectly acceptable and true. 
right? There's no, he didn't invent, a, 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 didn't stick a person into the genealogy that wasn't part of the descendants, right? So I think that part is clear. But the question is, then, well, why would he pick 14? The answer is, I don't know, right? And when you get to heaven, and Matthew is there, well, he will be, you can say, Matthew, why 14? Now, I am, I am going to leave you with three ideas as to why this might be, but I don't think you, we're ever going to be able to solve this one. All right, so three, and I'll give you the one that I, I think it is, all right, but the three, and all, and all of the commentators who mentioned this, good, solid, evangelical commentators, so they're not heretical, any of them, there are lots of heretical things, the heretical answer is that Matthew didn't know, or he's just making stuff up, he's lying, he, he's trying to fool us into thinking there were only 14 generations. He's not trying to fool us. Anyone would have known reading this. All right, so what, what are the three viable alternatives? Well, William Hendrickson says, in Scripture, seven frequently indicates the totality ordained by God. Fourteen, which is twice seven, also brings out this idea. So it would seem that three times fourteen are forty-two. This is equal to six sevens, and this immediately introduces the seventh seven, reduplicated completeness and perfection. So Matthew is trying to draw us towards, with his three fourteens, the perfection of Christ. Maybe. <laughs> but why didn't he just say seven, or many sevens, instead of fourteen? Okay, it could be, and again, guys, there is, it is true that seven is used thematically in Scripture. That's not, a, that's, that's not new, weird numerology, but it doesn't seem to be the best understanding of this. And William Hendrickson is a great guy, but was a great guy, but I don't think that's necessarily true. Now, the next one that's introduced, and this by some very solid commentators, Blomberg and Carson, who mostly I affirm, they say that what's going on here is a Jer the Jewish interpretive technique, which depended on the numerical value of Hebrew letters. It's called gematria. So the name David is the 14th name on the list. Now that's true. It is. It's the 14th name. And then they would say the uh, the consonants in the in the Hebrew consonants in David D and W and D are the numerical value of which is four, six, and four, giving a total of 14. 14 is thus the symbolic number of David. Maybe. But interpreting scripture through gematria is not something I'm going to affirm to you. And it doesn't seem that that is used by anyone else who interprets scripture in the New Testament. That, you know, that we're, we're working, looking at underlying Hebrew letters and their, you know, and their numerical meaning. It, it, that is, it is possible, but I don't think it's the best understanding. Now, R.T. France is the one who gives what I think is the most likely idea. And he says this, perhaps it is more likely that his focus on the number 14 derives from his observation that there were in fact 14 names in the geneal genealogical list we have in Chronicles from Abraham to David as recorded in the Old Testament. So it seems that he, there's 14 names that are recorded there. So he's just taking the biblical number 14 for the, the amount of people in the genealogy. And then he's just, for, for balance and to focus on David, he's taking 14 more and 14 more. So that David is emphasized and then the descendant of David, Jesus, is emphasized through the 14s because that's what was in the original scriptural list. I like that one best. Right. Now, it may not be it, but that seems to me to be the best understanding that Matthew's just taking that and then balancing it out so that David is focused upon because the descendant of David is Jesus who fulfills the Davidic covenant. All right, now, I don't want to leave you with questions about 14s. So I do want to leave you with several questions to consider as you think, well, we just did a genealogy. We just did this whole thing. All right, there's some cool stuff in there. What does it mean? First question I have for you is which lineage is most important to you? Is it your family lineage? Because your family's important. You're to take care of your children. You're to remember your parents and care for them. But in our culture, and not just Southern culture, but in most of the cultures around the world, family rules. 
And as your fam that's why all this billions of dollars on lineage and ancestry.com. Why? Because family is the most important thing. And if you don't have family, you don't have anything. And that's not what the Bible says. Family is important. But the genealogy of Jesus, the lineage of being in the family of God, trumps your physical family. Not in a foolish way. Not You can ignore them. The world finds its salvation in family. We find our salvation in the line and lineage of Jesus. That is our family. Don't ever forget that. And that's this lineage. This true physical lineage is given to us because we enter in as the children of Abraham by spiritual birth. And so this lineage becomes ours and its primary. Okay? It doesn't make us Jews, but it brings us in underneath the rule and reign of Jesus the Messiah. Second question is how much do you know about your spiritual ancestry? Nothing wrong with checking out you know, Ancestry.com. That's fine. But I hope that you aren't spending all kinds of time trying to dig into your history without digging into this history because this is your eternal history. And when you spend eternity with Christ, when you go to be with him, some of your family members will be there, but probably not all of them. And your understanding of your genealogy, it seems like everybody can get back to the Mayflower. I don't know how that is. There's a lot of people on the Mayflower somehow. Or, or some famous figure. You know, We always go back, wow, I have this guy in my lineage. If you are a believer, Jesus is your famous guy. Jesus is the one that you are to look at. And, and how much do you know? Guys, did you even know this stuff? Uh, I, didn't, I didn't look at some voodoo books and, and look at crystal balls to determine what's going on in this genealogy. It took some study. Yes, I had some help from commentators who were smart and wise, and I love that, but you can get the same help. And by reading the Old Testament, you would have already known most of this. <coughs> how much do you know about your true spiritual lineage? And then lastly, and, and most importantly, who's your father? Who's your father? Is it Abraham? As in, you are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, as Galatians says, because you have entered into the new covenant through repentance and faith. And then ultimately then, it's not Abraham who is, who is in the bigger picture of your father. It is whom? It is God, through Christ. And if he is not your father, then you have not entered in any way. This, this lineage means nothing to you. It's just, it's just words on a page. And it has no impact on you, except that you will one day see the Messiah trumpeted here as the one who is your judge. It will have impact on you. So I ask you, who is, who is your father? Do you know Christ? Is God your father because you are in Christ? And then this is meaningful. Then this is joyful. And then the rest of the study of Matthew will be the greatest joy to you. But apart from that, it will just, it will just be information. Words on a page. I pray that this genealogy will impact you this week by driving you to consider your spiritual heritage, consider your Father, God the Father, and consider the work of Christ and the Messiah, Son of David, Son of Abraham. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for what you have revealed to us in your word, so carefully constructed, so purposely written down that we might focus on your character, your grace, and saving we who are the worst of sinners. We who are far worse or certainly the same as the Tamars and the Rahabs. Oh, Father, we, we, we have nothing to say before you, yet, yet we, we bend our knee before you as our great God, as our King, as our Savior, as our Lord. And Father, we, we, we bow before you as our Heavenly Father. I pray for each one that this would be meaningful, that, that their spiritual heritage and the, and the physical heritage of Christ would drive them to a joy in you and a desire to emulate you and to live as a part of your family that reflects your greatness and your character. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.
Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. Pastor Chris has demonstrated that the historical records prove that Jesus is, in fact, the rightful heir to the kingship of Israel by a logical and rational look at Jesus' genealogy. For believers, our prayer is that the historical record strengthens your faith in King Jesus. If you are not a believer, we pray that you will see that the historical records do in fact support his claim as King, Messiah, and Savior. If you would like to find out more about Grace Community Church, please visit us at gracemaryville.org. There you can read our statement of faith and our distinctives, as well as review our audio and video archives, which include sermons, Sunday school lessons, and sermons from our many guest speakers at our SOLA conferences and our Essentials conferences. If you're ever in East Tennessee, we would love to have you worship with us in person. Our address, phone number, and email information can all be found at gracemaryville.org. Join us soon as Pastor Chris continues in an exegetical look at the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the king and the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.